Well, I, I will probably never ask uh, a third grader this question, but it worked with me. Now, I was in, in church in Sunday school, and maybe it was because the person who was asking me was so kind-hearted and tender and like really soft-spoken. Um, or maybe it was I just didn't understand the intensity of the question of which I was being asked. But, but the question, her question, Deb was her name, it was this. If you got in a car accident on your way home from church, would you go to heaven? The question was aggressive, uh, but her point to third graders, which I was in third grade Sunday school in that moment, it was simple, and I, listen, I understood. that Just because you have Christian parents does not mean that you are a Christian. Or just because you think you're a really nice person does not mean you're a Christian. Being a Christian is not fundamentally about being nice. Or that just because you attend church or you live in a country where most people or a lot of people attend church, that's not what makes you a Christian. That to be a Christian is to follow Jesus. To have come to this moment in your life where you have said, yes, I will follow him wherever he leads. So there in in third grade, Sunday school, I I decided, listen, I don't want to leave any ambiguity around any potential car crash, and so let's do this. I'll give my life to Jesus. That way we we answer that question. We figure it out. Um, And so I gave my life to Christ, became a Christian, followed Jesus, was baptized a couple of weeks later. But a few years later, after that moment, I I began to see there was really a gaping hole in that moment, a gaping hole in the decision I made as a third grader. That's just before I, I went into high school, so I'm in eighth grade at this, this moment. Um, I had a moment in my life where God made it very clear to me that he wanted me to be a pastor. And it's a long story. The only important thing for you in this moment is for you to understand that I, there was no doubt in my mind. He made it abundantly clear to me. There was not a question. Absolutely, this was what I was supposed to do with my life. And I hated it. That I had dreams, aspirations. Hopes for my, my life. I'm in eighth grade, right? And, and so not a single one of those dreams or, or aspirations had anything to do with spending any more time at church than I already had to and certainly not becoming a pastor. But God was clear to me. Leave those dreams, those aspirations. Leave what you want to do with your life behind. Follow me. And so in that moment, Christianity became something very different to me. See, growing up in church, and maybe some of you are kids, or maybe some of you are a little bit older now, I I always thought Jesus was essentially a really nice person. That's essentially who he was, right? I always saw him cuddling with sheep in pictures at church, and we sang the song, maybe some of you have sung it softly and tenderly, Jesus came calling, calling to me to come home, right? He's soft, he's tender, he's nice, he's safe. But now, before I'm even in high school, he's demanding my life, telling me what career to go on. Right, and he's not just telling me, listen, you need to be nicer, stop cussing so much, be a little bit, stop hitting your sister, making fun of her. He's not saying that. He's saying, hey, this is, you, this is your career. You can't do anything else. This is what you have to do if you're going to follow him. He's deciding the whole trajectory of my life before I'm 15. And so suddenly I was forced to ask a question, a question I didn't have to ask in third grade in that moment. What does Jesus want from me? That I was always really clear on what I wanted from Jesus, right? You know, potential insurance from any car crash or um, a good life, right? Grace, his kindness, his peace. I wanted his blessings to flow into my life. Listen, I was always pretty clear about what I expected from Jesus. And, and, and I mean, I was honest. I expected, I certainly thought Jesus needed things from me or he wanted things from me, but not this. 
This was too much. But is it? Can Jesus demand anything of us? Is there anything any one of us could rightfully hold back from him and say, that's unreasonable, that's too much, not that? But what does Jesus want from, from you? What does Jesus want from me? That's at the heart of Matthew 4 here. That's what this, this passage is about. What, what he wants from you, when he wants it from you, and why you should give it to him. It's a pretty simple outline. What he wants, when you should give it, and why you should give it. So first, what, what does Jesus want from you? And before we jump into this, this story, the, the passage Andrew read for us, we have to remember last week, the context of the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew first, or chapter 4, the first 11 verses, is Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And the whole point of that temptation is to prove Jesus, unlike us as human beings, he doesn't fail, he doesn't fall. He is unlike us. And so now, because he's shown that, because he's proven himself, he's ready to go out and, and go into ministry, to begin to tell people, hey, listen, I'm, I'm stronger than anything evil you know in this world. I actually, I've defeated that. And so in verse 17, you get a glimpse of Jesus' entire message, right? Matthew sums up Jesus' entire life and message in, in chapter 4, verse 17. It was the first verse Andrew read for us. The, the, Jesus' whole message in one sentence, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you want to know who Jesus was, what he was about, that's, that's him in a sentence. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? Well, we get a glimpse of what that means with these two vignettes of these two brothers, um, Peter and Andrew and, and James and John. And so Jesus, he's walking along the Sea of Galilee in this moment. It's a huge lake um, that if you've ever been to Clinton Lake in um, Lawrence, it's about seven Clinton Lakes altogether, so it's a pretty sizable lake. It was a heavily fished lake um, and provided food for that entire region, so it was an important place. Um, and it's here, walking along the Sea of Galilee, Jesus comes along these two brothers, Peter and Andrew, who were from a town called Bethsaida, which literally is translated, or we would literally translate fish town. Right, so it's not hard to, to imagine what they did for a living or what was important to them or what their identity or their community was wrapped around. It was fishing. It was their economy. It was their income. It was their future. And so this also means that when we think of these guys as fishermen, don't think like some of you who are fishermen, like you go out, it's a recreation thing. Right, and you tell t tales about what kind of fish you caught. That's not what's going on. These are commercial fishermen. This is their, their, their business. This is their livelihood. It's so a picture around net, 25 feet across, weighted around the edges. And they'd cast it out. They'd let it sink and then scoop it back up to see what they caught, to see what their income for the day would be. So from the Gospel of John, we know Peter and Andrew, they knew who Jesus was. They'd already had some encounters with him, but they certainly didn't know enough or had not learned enough for what was about to happen to actually happen. And Jesus comes up to them, and one word in the Greek, it's two words for us in English, throws out a command to them, follow me. And Matthew doesn't want us to miss either probably the shocking nature of what, what happens or um, the completeness of which what is about to happen. But, but Matthew writes, immediately they left their nets and followed him. One word in the Greek, follow me, and immediately they drop their whole life. They leave their career, their community, their family. They leave their security, their paycheck, without questions and without any clarification. Follow me. And so Jesus goes on from these two brothers, and he finds another set of brothers, James 
And John, and these were commercial fishermen as well. In the boats, uh, in this moment, they're in the boat mending their nets with their father. And so this is, all, this is clearly a small business they're running with um, their father. And we even know what kind of boat they would have, have been in, that we actually, uh, an archaeologist has found the remains of a first century fishing boat, a boat um, from this time um, that, that the, these guys would have been in. Um, it was about 27 feet long, which would have meant uh, about room for five workers, or 15 workers. And so here's a smaller uh, replica of, of a similar boat, the James and John, right? They, ha- they have a good fishing business. They have employees. They have overhead, right? They have a need to pay their bills. They're in business with their, their father. Sometimes I think we picture the, the disciples as, as dumb and poor rednecks, and they didn't really know much, and, and Jesus call, called them along. But that, that's not it. They're, they're small business owners making a living, when along comes Jesus, who says, come do this instead. Come follow me. And for the second time, we're told the same thing happens as what happened in Andrew and Peter. Immediately, James and John left their boats and their father and followed him. And so again, with, with one word in the Greek, they leave their community, their family, their career, their paycheck, with no questions, and no clarifications from Jesus. Which for us raises the question, why? Why would they do this? And I think, I think there's two things happening here that, that are important for us to understand. That, that first, that, that what Jesus is doing is, here is, is completely against the accepted norm of the day. Right? If you were a teacher or a rabbi in that day, what you would do is, is if you wanted to have disciples, you made the disciples prove themselves to you. Right? You might put them through weird tests or, or make them show, that, show you their knowledge. Right? They had to prove themselves as worthy of being your disciple, of being of your student. But, but Jesus doesn't do that. <laughs> he comes up to these four guys, whom, whom he knows far better than they know him, and he says to them, you follow me. It's the exact opposite of what normally would happen. Normally the, the disciples would say, can I follow you? That's not what's happening here. Jesus is inviting them to follow him. The other thing that's important for us is we actually have more information about Jesus than these disciples have. Right, Peter and Andrew, James and John, they probably haven't read Matthew 1 through 4 at this point. Right? They, they don't know Jesus' origins. They probably don't know he's born of a virgin. They probably don't know of what happened in the wilderness, Jesus overcoming Satan. And yet, they, they drop everything and follow him. But you and I, we have more information. Right? Matthew 1 and 2, the whole point is Jesus is a king. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Right? Matthew 3, that, that he is the son of God, baptized to, to, to go into ministry for to serve the Father. In, in, in Matthew 4, Jesus overcomes Satan. He doesn't fall into temptation like you and I fall into temptation. So we know a little bit more about Jesus. And if, if listen, if what Matthew is saying is true about Jesus, and it's a big if, but if it's true, then this is the sort of, of person who could come up to you and say, stop everything you're doing and come this way. Put it all on the table and follow me. Which answers the question from us. Right, what, what does Jesus want from you? Everything. He wants it all. Which sounds ridiculous, right? And it's all based on whether or not Jesus is who Matthew said he is. And so when Jesus comes to me, it doesn't matter how old I am. It doesn't matter how, how much I know about him or think I know about him. He has the right to say, you're going to do this job. This is your career. And I want to be careful here, right? Too many pastors have actually used this passage to say, Jesus wants you to quit your job and come be a pastor or serve the church. And that's not what's going on here. The point of this passage is not 
Serving the church is better than not serving the church. The point of this passage is Jesus can ask anything of you. And if it means you leave your career to go be a pastor, that's what it means. Or if it means you, you stop being a pastor, you go start a business, or you go into a career, a different career, you do that. The point is Jesus can ask anything of you. With him, it's all on the table. He can demand anything and he can ask anything. Now you have to understand, Jesus, he's not like, following Jesus, it's not like adding a new ingredient to a dish, right? Jesus, he's not the cherry on top of the Sunday of your life, right? He's the new ingredient that ruins the dish. That means you have to start over with a new recipe, and I would just ask, if you follow Jesus, have you, have you come to terms with that? Or do you think there are things in your life that are off limits to him? Things that he can just, he can ask of you that, that just, they're frankly unreasonable. <laughs> now, one of the, the most challenging things I've done as, as a pastor is, um, is pastor people who have or experience same-sex attraction. And so early in my life as a pastor, I came to see, I was actually a little bit hypocritical um, and the way I, I dealt with this, and, and just so you know, we, we preached on this about a year ago. If you want kind of our full understanding of the way we approach same-sex attraction, I'd be glad to give you the sermon. But the short of what I, what I was feeling this, or this week in, in looking at this, t- this text is, is also, I believe that the Bible, what it says about same-sex attraction is that the Bible calls you to a life of celibacy, right? That, that the only place um, where human sexuality can flourish is in heterosexual marriage. Um, but I realized what I was doing to people with same-sex attraction was what I, what I did it actually to someone who we baptized in Indiana when I was a pastor there. And I told her before baptisms, I said something like this, which is, is you know, you're going to carry a burden following Jesus, you know, follow, going after a life of celibacy, a burden I'll never know. It's, it's, it will be far harder for you than it is for me or for most Christians. But Sam Albury, who is a pastor and who is also same-sex attracted, a Christian committed to celibacy, thinks I'm wrong for saying that. That he wrote something that deeply convicted me about the way I've approached my own faith, my own life, my own following of Jesus. Here's what he says. He says, ever since I've been open about my own experiences of homosexuality, a number of Christians have said something like this. The gospel must be harder for you than it is for me. As though I have more to give up than they do. But the fact is the gospel demands everything from all of us. If someone thinks the gospel has somehow slotted into their life quite easily without causing any major adjustments to their lifestyle or aspiration, it is likely that they have not really started following Jesus at all. And that quote, I think, speaks to my problem in third grade and probably a lot of, a lot of us, our problem, having grown up in a context that's very, at least nominally Christian, whether you've gone to church or not, which is this assumption that following Jesus is kind of like just a thing you do on the side. Right, that we can all be kind of nominally, culturally Christian without actually having come to terms with what he's saying here, which is if, listen, if you follow Jesus, it's not an addition to your life. He doesn't slot in without adjustment or without ruining the life that you've built for yourself. You cannot follow Jesus without him making serious demands of your life and where it's headed. He doesn't want some of you. He doesn't want a piece of you. He wants all of us. And so what... What are you, what are we, what are, what are you holding back from him? Does he have the right to, to challenge your, your finances, the way you spend money? Does he have the right to speak into the way that you treat either your immediate family or your extended family? And then one of my cautions here is, is maybe some of you are saying this, like, hey, this sounds great. I'll follow Jesus, leave my family behind. They're, they're annoying anyway. Like, let's just get easier. Let's do that. That's not, what, that's not what's going on here, right? Jesus has the right to say anything and speak, and maybe it is leave your family, maybe it's not, maybe it's, it's digging deeper. Or does he have any right to say, speaking to the way you spend your free time, what your career 
is for students, those of you who are wrestling with your future, does he get to speak into that? See, you can't follow Jesus unless you leave. Right? You can't follow anyone or anything unless you turn, right? You repent from the direction you're headed and go in a new direction. That's what Jesus is calling all of us. When he starts his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven at hand, what he's saying is, I'm going this way, you're going that way. You're going to have to leave that way if you're following me. You've got to go this way. Come, follow me. And these four guys, these two brothers, immediately, they left everything and followed him. So that's what Jesus wants from you, um, everything. And my guess is most of us probably, we're, we, we understand that, right? And we, eventually, I'll give everything to God, right? I mean, if, if there's a God, if, if Jesus is God, then certainly he probably has the right to, to, to direct my life. I get that. For most of us, probably the, the, the problem is the second question, right? When, then, does he expect it? When does he want everything from us? And the word's there twice in Matthew 4, immediately. I mean, Matthew could not be clear here about what he thinks Jesus' call to follow him means for us. It means immediately we drop everything and follow him. Now understand, following Jesus, it's not like paying your taxes, right? Like we're entering that season, I do my own taxes, and so I am diligent about finding every possible credit and exception I can find. I get that bill down to the least amount possible, and then I'm willing, and maybe then I'm willing to pay. I actually might need to go over it again to make sure I'm not missing anything. I'm going to give the least amount I can give. That's not what following Jesus is like. He's not going to come through your life and, and negotiate with you about what he wants to speak into and what he doesn't want to speak into. He is, he is not a negotiator. Jesus, Jesus, he doesn't argue with you. He commands, follow me. Put it on the table. And if you follow Jesus, you can't say, I will, but later. Right, well, okay, okay, at the next promotion, that's when I can start. God, I'll have more margin, I'll start being generous. Then, no, it's not immediately. Or it's, I'll pray and read my Bible more when, when my schedule's more realistically. Right, I'll have a devotional life when I have a realistic schedule, and I can, I can put it in the morning or in the evening. Or I'll, I'll find a place to serve or jump into a community group or serve my community once, once I just have more margin. I'm just too busy right now. No, it's, listen, it's immediately. It's all on the table now. With Jesus, there is no negotiation. There's no, let's revisit this in, in three months and let's hash this out. No, it is immediately, it's all on the table and he has the right. But don't reject or ignore what we sang earlier, that one of my favorite hymns, Come You Sinners, that come you weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall, if you tarry till you're better, till you're ready, you'll never come at all. But if, if you wait... To give your life to Jesus, there's always going to be a good reason not to hand over your life to Jesus. He's always unreasonable, and he's always far too demanding. There's always going to be a good reason to say, not yet. And Matthew's pushing back against our hearts that want to hold back and wait. Which raises the question for us, why? Why is it that we hold back? Why is it that we wait? And, and just to press into three things, I think, that are pretty common. The first, probably most of us, we don't want to give, we don't want to give up control. Right, that we fear if we really obeyed Jesus, really followed him, he would not lead us to the place we would have chosen for ourselves. Right? It's like, well, I know if I'm leading, I'm going to go where I want to go, and maybe Jesus will follow me there. Right? And, and listen, if you give up control, if you follow Jesus, he'll take you somewhere you don't want to go. But that's the whole point of following, isn't it? That you're not in control of where you're going. And if you try to stay in control of where you're going, if your reaction to what Jesus is saying or calling you to is, you know, let me think that over. Let me decide. Let me, let me wrestle with that. If that's your reaction, you're not following Jesus. You're asking him to follow you. He's just an advisor, a negotiator. 
to you, a, a spiritual counsel, if you will. And listen, if you've read Matthew 1 through 4, Jesus, the king of the universe, God himself, God dwelling among us, Emmanuel, who defeated Satan in the wilderness, is not going to be an advisor to you. He's not interested in that role. He'll be your God. He'll be your Lord. But he will not be your help or your advice. And if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to leave your desire for control behind. He's, he runs the show now. Or maybe for some of it, it's, it's, or some of you, it's, it's not that you need to be controlled, but you feel like you need to learn more. There's an attention, and a common objection I even hear to Christianity, you know, it's like, well, if God just showed himself to me, of course I'd follow, of course I'd, I'd go after him. If I knew more, if I had more information, then I'd, I'd follow him. And, and I, so I think Matthew 1 through 3 actually is pushing back a little bit against that, the way he constructs this, this narrative. That whether, listen, whether you're a Christian who is struggling to give up something to God that, that he's calling you to give up, or whether you're not a Christian, you're not sure you should even follow him in the first place, I can, I can promise all of us in this room our problem is not that we don't have enough information. Right? If Matthew's serious, the pro, listen, these guys have less information than you and I have. Right? They, they have less knowledge about who Jesus is than you and I have, and yet Matthew says they still should follow. They still should go and give it all up. Following Jesus, listen, it's never about how much information you have. That's why Jesus says to us, come to me, not prove yourself, and then I'll tell you if you're worthy, once you know enough, once you're smart enough. But even more importantly than that, listen, you're not going to know Jesus more unless you follow him. You're not going to know him more because he's not a specimen in a dish, right? He's not a character in a novel. He's a living person. And just like you can't look at my Facebook page and say you know me, right? You just know pictures, pieces. The only way you're going to know more about Jesus is to actually... Leave behind your life and follow him. That's what's going on in, in Matthew 4. These, these men know enough about Jesus to know he's different. And so they set out to follow him to see. And listen, if, if you're a Christian or if you're not, you cannot deny to me that Jesus is different. And maybe he's not who he said he is. Maybe the whole thing is made up. But there is no doubt Jesus has completely changed world history. And although the church has its issues, the church has also done a lot of good. You cannot deny that Jesus has overall been a force for good and an interesting person in history. And you're not going to know more about him unless you follow him. He's not going to show up and prove himself to you. So then you can start negotiating your way into following him. No. <laughs> you know enough. Follow him. Or maybe the reason we don't follow Jesus is that, let's be honest, he's unreasonable. He asks too much. When Jesus says to us, follow me, he's not saying, hey, let's go, let's go think about where your life is headed. What he's saying is follow me means I want you to change and interrupt your entire life for me. I want you to give up your dreams, your aspirations, unless, unless they are in line with what it means to follow me. I want you to give up your whole life, put it on a table, and let's talk from here. Which raises the question, how, can, how could anyone ask that, let alone God? I mean, if, if there's a God, why wouldn't he just say, you know, you guys just kind of do what you want and, and be, a, be a nice, decent person. Why would God, if he exists, why would he be like this? Right, and it all depends whether or not Jesus can ask this of, of us. It all depends on who he is and why he's asking. Whether or not you should give everything up to him. Whether or not he can make what at least seems to you unreasonable demands. It all depends on who he is and why he's asking Listen, I know I'm not the one to make this point. That Jesus has made incredible adjustments and interruptions to my own life. That the only reason I'm, I'm, I have a Bible open preaching, talking about Jesus, is because he told me what career to, to go into. 
Right? And so I can tell you, listen, Jesus has every right to make any demand, and it's worth it. You should go. You should follow. But I, there are people who can make far more compelling case than me. People who have given up far more and yet still find Jesus completely worth it and satisfying. And so I'll let someone make the better case. Her name's Ladon, and she's a Christian from Iran who serves with one of our global partners, um, Elam Ministry, who uh, works in Turkey and Iran. And so I want her to explain both um, why Jesus uh, is worth it, what it cost her, um, and whether or not it was, it was too much. So let's take a moment and watch, watch this clip. اسم من لادنه من در ایران به دنیا آمدم در یک خانواده مسلمان در ایران ممنوعه که کسی به مسیح ایمان بیاره مخصوصا اگر مسلمون باشه و کتاب مقدس داشته باشه کتاب مقدس به کس دیگه ای بده در مورد ایمانش با کسی صحبت بکنه این یه جرم به حساب میاد وقتی که به کلیسا رفتم و دیدم که چطور خدا رو با شادی پرستش میکنن برام خیلی عجیب بود خاطر اینکه تو اسلام ما معمولا تو مراسمی که خیلی مراسم ازاداری هست و با گریه مسلمونا خدا رو میپرستن و دعا میکنن زمانی که خانواده من و دوستان متوجه شدن که من به مسیح ایمان آوردن اصلا خوشحال نبودن مخصوصا خانوادم میدیدن که زندگی من داره تغییر میکنه توی ایران شروع کردم به بشارت دادن هر جایی که میرفتم با خودم انجیل کتاب مقدس میبردم اونجا هر کسی رو که میدیدم توی پارک توی مرکزهای خرید با در مورد مسیح صحبت میکردم انجیل رو بهشون میدادم میدیدم که چقدر مردم با اشتیاق این کتاب رو میگیرن و شروع میکنن به خوندن هر روز بیشتر میدیدم که مردم به مسیح ایمان میارن 26 دسامبر بود که من رو دستگیر کردن و من به زندان رفتم نمیدونستم که چه مدتی من قراره که اونجا باشم فکر میکردم که برای خیلی مدت طولانی اونجا خواهم بود میدونم که الان خیلی شاید توی نگرانی و ناامیدی هستیم ولی میخوام بگم که برای تو امید هست در عیسی مسیح So watching that video <coughs> raises the question for me, how, how could someone say there's hope in Jesus when Jesus is actually the person who sent them to prison and out of their community, out of their family, out of their country to flee for safety? How, how could someone say both of those, those things? And the answer, it's in this text, it's what Ladon actually spoke to, right? That, that Jesus, listen, he calls us to, to, to give up anything, um, puts everything on the table. And secondly, he, it's not a negotiation, it's now. Um, so thirdly, why? Why should we put it on the table for, for him? 
So verses 20 through 25, or to me, they answer to that, that question. After you see Jesus call these people to follow him, this is what he begins to do in his ministry. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. What's described here is that Jesus goes through every village in Galilee, right? over 200 of them um, in this day, and, and would have taught and healed. And as Matthew says, proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Which raises the question for me, what, what's the gospel of the kingdom? What does that, what does that mean? And, right, and remember that the sins that define Jesus' ministry is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So here we, we hear this phrase, gospel of the kingdom. What is that? And gospel to, to us today, it's a religious um, word, but it wasn't in that day. In that day, a gospel was, it was an announcement, uh, most often from a king, and most often when a king had won a great military victory. Right? He defeats his enemies, and so he sends a gospel back to his people to say, we won. It's over. That's what a gospel is, an, an announcement of victory. And so as Jesus is going through these villages in verses 23 through 25, he's telling this world, these people... That it's over, he's won. He has a gospel to announce. Which is why he could go around and heal every human disease, right? Cancer, Parkinson's, ALS, Alzheimer's, ALS, cured, all of it. Human ailments, right? Paralysis, cured. Human pain, whether it's depression or grief, cured. That's what it means. Jesus is saying, all of these things that, that bring you down, that ruin your life, that you suffer from, I've beaten those things, and, and, and I've won, it's over, and so let me, this is where, it, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not, if there was someone who could do that, right, who could bring in this world, who actually could heal any disease, could usher in a world free of pain and sadness and trial, what could that person ask of you that would be too much? What could that person ask of you that you'd say, you know, let's, that's later, and maybe, maybe you're thinking, about, okay, but Tim, if I actually saw healing, or if I saw Jesus going around do that, doing this, I would follow him. There are lots of people who don't get healed now. What about, what about them? And you're right. And that, listen, one of, that's one of the reasons Matthew's main point is, is look at Jesus' life. Right? And it, Jesus' life is about healing, and most of Matthew's gospel is about healing and disease being overcome. But what Matthew says is not that the kingdom of God is here, it's at hand. Right, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which means the kingdom, it's breaking in, it's here in some way. That's why you get amazing stories like Ladon's, or you get stories of healing in this life, but it's not all the way here yet. And it's why Matthew will spend much of the rest of his gospel explaining to us, it's here, but it's also not yet here. And for all of us, whether you're a Christian or whether you are not, isn't this the world you long for? A world for you, both of disease and suffering. A world where there is actually someone who could go from village to village and say, what's wrong? What hurts? Let me fix. Let me heal. Asking that question, do we want that world? It's ridiculous. Of course we want that world. We spend an enormous amount of, of, of energy as people to, to heal, to eradicate disease. We spend a lot of energy here. We want this world to come. And my longing for this world was recently reignited by the, by the story of the family here in 
in our church, um, the Hilkers, many of you know them, and, and, and some of you have had the privilege of serving in our, our children's ministry. You've had the pleasure of meeting Isaac um, Hilker. He's a four-year-old who, uh, who, if he's not helping uh, breaking down band equipment, he's mastering the scooters um, in the gym once church ends. Now, I first heard Isaac's name um, when I got to Christ Community almost three years ago. Um, this is actually my fourth day on the job, and it was an elders meeting early in the morning, and, and the elders were praying for Isaac because Isaac, in, at that time, at two years old, um, had leukemia. And so a painful reminder of the world of Matthew 4, the world Jesus is walking around from village to village, speaking to and announcing victory to. Uh, today, praise God, Isaac is, is cancer-free. Um, that doesn't mean we should stop praying that any of us who have encountered cancer before, we know the reality that it can come back. It's, it's, you're never out of the woods. But today we celebrate. We celebrate healing and victory in, in little Isaac's life. And the celebration of Isaac, it's been kind of cool, has actually made its way to a few billboards around Kansas City with his picture on them. Um, right? And so take a, take a look at, at Isaac in front of one of his, his billboards. Right? And of course this is the sort of thing, the thing that should be on a billboard. Right? Whether, whether this is the world we long for, right? whether you're a Christian or not. The world where Isaac rides his bike in a scooter and helps me put my drums away on Sunday. That's the, that's the right world. That's the world we want to be. And whether you believe in God or not, whether you're angry at God, don't trust him, or wonder why would God even give cancer to a child in the first place. No matter where you're at, don't you long for a world where that, that's the norm. Where healing and, and, and kindness and grace and restoration is our sum existence. And so that, that leads me to a different question. Which is, who other than Jesus do you think actually can bring that world? Where those billboards of Isaac are not just a momentary celebration, but we all have our own billboard lasting into eternity, healed. All of us, never to be undone. And maybe you think all religions teach that, all religions teach, you know, there's going to be paradise, it's all going to work out in the end. That's what every religion teaches, but every religion doesn't teach that. And in fact, Christianity is very unique here in, in two <laughs> places. That, that first, in other religions, listen, you have to clean up your own life to, to get into that kingdom, to get to paradise. And a lot of times, you get cancer because it's your fault. You weren't moral enough, you weren't good enough, and God is punishing you because of what you did. Jesus is completely different. You're not earning your way into the kingdom. He's calling you. He's inviting you into the kingdom. He says to all of us, regardless of history, regardless of past, regardless of reputation, come, follow me. But the other unique thing here to me, Jesus, is this, this tirelessly or this tireless caring of all of these villages. I mean, Jesus would have, this would have taken months, this would have taken um, uh, days upon days of going from village to village to village, talking to people you and I have never heard of, healing diseases we were never aware of, caring for people in a way that, that, that should just blow our minds. Because nowhere else will you find a God this involved in mundane places with mundane normal people just to heal simple diseases. Caring for the most forgotten, calling them to follow him, announcing he has good news. He, he has a gospel to proclaim. And so I would just say, if, if you, this, this text has two implications, and they're very explicit. Either to, if you're not a Christian or if you are a Christian. If you're not a Christian, the text is saying you need to be. You need to follow Jesus. That, that where else is this world coming but by him? Or that who else has invited you into his own kingdom who says not just come, but also I will heal and make right everything wrong in your life. A world that's breaking in now, that Jesus says, a kingdom that's breaking in that one day he will bring to completion. That who other than Jesus gives you confidence this world actually comes. That this sort of healing is actually going to take place at some point. 
But it's not just blind, optimistic, human, uh, good feelings, but actually someone can do this. This is a call for all of us, every one of us, to follow Jesus. And, and my encouragement to you, either you're a Christian or if you're not, if we have a baptism service coming up in a few weeks, I would say, if you're not following Jesus, if you want to know more about him or you're not sure about him, well, jump in like these disciples. Go after him, follow him. So that's the implication if, if you're not a Christian. If you are a Christian, the implication is, is you and I, if you're following Jesus, you have to want him for others. You have to be a person who shares your faith. And the metaphor here, it's a little, it's a little awkward. It weirds us out a little bit, right? Jesus, he, listen, he doesn't just say, follow me. He also says, I will make you fishers of men, right? And so we're all uncomfortable with that. It seems a little weird. What does it mean to be a fisher of men? But, but, but what his point is, listen, if, if this world is actually coming, verses 23 through 25 are actually going to happen. This sort of healing, this sort of grace, this sort of kindness is breaking into our world. Like how cruel do you have to be to not tell people? Right? How, how, how indifferent do you have to be to people to not care for them to jump into a kingdom that is breaking in among us? And so we as Christians, listen, we're called to share our faith. And, and let me just disappoint you now. There's no way to do this that isn't weird, okay? I think a lot of times we think, oh, how do I just say the right thing or approach it? And just, listen, there is no right thing to say. There is no right way to approach it. That in our, our culture, we have a clear line of don't talk about religion in public. And listen, Jesus says, you have to. This is what I'm calling you to do. So it's going to be weird. It's going to be awkward. That's not a license to be a jerk or to be mean, right, or be stupid. Right? Be wise, be humble, like Jesus, right, going among the weak, saying, hey, there's, there's good news. But you and I, we are, we are called to this sharing of this kingdom that's breaking in among us, that Jesus initiated 2,000 years ago, and he is bringing back when he comes and returns. That's, frankly, that's, Above all the other reasons why we started um, this, this new campus, to create another place where the gospel is proclaimed in the midst of a living community, to tell to, to, to our communities, to our neighborhoods, to our schools, to our friends, there's good news of a kingdom breaking in among us. And so today, uh, believe it or not, we, we celebrate um, kind of technically a one-year anniversary. This is, this is it, so it feels like we're making a lot of progress um, <laughs> right now. Uh, whatever. Um, but after, you know, I had a week off um, just before the new year, and I was just reflecting on what, what does this mean, right? And, and what, is, what does year two look like? And, and here's where I think so many churches make churches really complicated, right? They do a million things. They wear everyone out doing a million things. And, and for me, as I've thought about this year, one, dwelling in Matthew's gospel, but two, who we're called to be as a church. Listen, the two things I want to be about are right in this passage, it's so the two things we always need to be about. It's not complicated. It's not difficult. It might be some things we do, some things we don't do, but, but these two things are always front and center. The first, we follow Jesus, right? No matter what he calls us to do, we do it. Everything's on the table. Nothing gets withheld. He has a right to ask or demand anything of us. We follow him wherever he goes, wherever he leads. But second, and, and, and more importantly, I think something that I want to make more focus for us this year is we proclaim the gospel to people outside the walls of, of our church Right, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, to our friends. I don't know what that means. There's nothing, no brilliant program behind that. It's just, listen, if, if this is true, and it is, I, I, with all my heart, I think this is true. People need to hear this. Because as a, listen, as a pastor, someone who people often let past the, the initial walls we build up, right, the Facebook profiles we have where everything looks great and fine and, and wonderful, let me tell you, that's not most people, right? That's not most of you in this room, right, if we're honest. Mostly, we get past the wall. It's a mess, for all of us, that's the world. That's the norm for this world. And Jesus said, I'm going to break through that wall, and I can actually not just 
sit with you in your mess, but heal you and restore you from all of it. Physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever it is, he can heal you from every piece of it. And we're, we're as Christians sent into the world to, to announce that. That healing has come. Right, that even though we didn't want to follow, even though the things we want to hold back from God, he held nothing back from us. Right, that even though I can continually find things that God asks of me that I don't want to do for him, there is nothing he has not given to me. Most evident by his own son going to a cross, giving his own life, pouring out all of his love and grace into my life. That he has given it all to you, to you and to me, that he keeps coming to all of us, everyone saying to us, follow me. It's all on the table. Let's go. Come this way. Let's pray.